Well, the uh, situation in Ephesus was precariously, dangerously similar to the situation in the days of the Levites as they are today. In other words, I want you to go into this sermon recognizing that our situation in a postmodern context where increasingly Christianity is, is seeking to survive surrounded by the Canaanites. Canaanites, in our case, are secular and post-spiritual. And therefore, this world where, where there is a, a concept that, we, that around us is in a hyper-majority. We are increasingly beginning to hear sermons across the country even about this idea of being resident aliens, living in a place that's not familiar or, or uh, familiar to the Christian faith. The situation was dire then in, in Leviticus. It was dire in Ephesus as it is today. What is the situation all in those cases? What do we see in common? Well, Paul addresses them all in this book that we're reaching, uh, teaching in 1 Timothy. There were those who were self-appointed pastors and elders who were wandering from the orthodoxy of apostolic faith, that faith which was, was handed down even through the prophets. So we remember that Christianity is not just a New Testament reality. It's, it's an Old Testament reality, and we see much from that. There was a kind of confident casualness about uh, these pastors, a, a casualness in terms of especially about reading the Old Testament. In fact, we know that it went into a full-blown controversy called the Marcionite Controversy and not believing in the Old Testament as part of our scriptures anymore. We know that this, there was a growing misunderstanding of the role of the Holy Spirit such that these pastors would rely on their subjective impulses and their subjective ideas uh, as, as they read the scriptures that they did have, the apostolic faith, they would reinterpret it based upon their, their own subjective experience and, and this idea of prophesying. It's not about uh, ex expositing the apostles, if you will, but it was about the spirit-filled new revelations that would come, even if prompted by the apostles. Very different understanding. I hope even in saying that you begin to hear just how I mean, just watch the TV. Look at the churches that are growing. I mean, it's, you couldn't have defined them more. Here's the way Paul said it. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, meaning vain relative to orthodoxy. They're, they're doing stuff that's really irrelevant to what the gospel is about. Designed to be teachers of the law without, mis without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They're confidently, you feel this charismatic energy coming from these false prophets or these wandering prophets, I should say, probably all of which were coming at it with good intentions. Well, as a result, there was this growing crisis, a crisis in not only what they taught, but how they lived their life. So goes teaching, so goes life. Particularly, there was a crisis evidently in Ephesus that focused on the manner of life that is is. Nicely, the, more, more, the, the, the lacking the moral clarity is nicely summarized in the second half of the, of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the ones that deal with our relationships one to another. And so think about what's happening here. We see how it is that, that increasingly with the world that's happening around them, the controversies, the political activity, the, the, what's happening in the, with the youth of that culture, there was this, this incredible lack 
of clarity in terms of a moral way of life. And remember, just so you hear this, that from a perspective of the Scripture, morality is is nothing less than the mind of God. Now think about how beautiful this is. How beautiful and how flourishing God's mind of what order would look like, what relationships would look like. This is a God who lives and exists in Holy Trinity communion since the beginning of time. I mean, certainly he knows a a thing or two about social relations and the way a, a beautiful society would look. Have you ever thought about the law like that? the way the scriptures describe it in, in, in the Psalms. Oh, how I love thy law. Now, if you divorce the theology that supports that law, if you lose the, the, the content of what the flourishing life is, then laws become rules. Rules to resist because now we see them in our small and finite minds as things which, which prevent flourishing and prevent happiness and And if you hear the word law in the Old Testament or the New, you will never hear it like that. Paul even rejects that in in Colossians and says, you know, according to the letter of the law. He's saying according to a rule detached from from the beautiful mind of God and this beautiful social context of that mind that he envisions for his children. And yet a world who's lost that. And so in terms of that, then we know that, that, that Paul is concerned about this because in Ephesians, when he wrote the letter to Ephesians, he, he spent two whole chapters re-envisioning for the Ephesians the beauty of the law, the, five, the last five commandments especially. He talked about a healthy understanding of authority under the, rule, uh, under the law, honor thy father and mother. And of course, we learn, if you've been here, that that speaks to the beginning of authority as it emanates through redemptive history into the institutions of church and state as well. A healthy understanding of the sacredness of life. Man, do we need that. We heard a sermon already about this idea of, of the sacredness and, and the beauty of human life and the ways in which, which, now remember, the way the laws are said in the Old Testament is usually in the negative in, in a quick sentence. They're like titles to get your attention. But they were literally volumes and volumes written in even Deuteronomy and Leviticus especially, but also, of course, to some degree in Exodus, which if you don't read them, you would, you would see them as a don't-do list. But they're not. They're much deeper than that. I think you begin to see that there. By the way, did you hear how many times that when you violate the spouse of a, of a person, you violated the, the spouse itself as, as, as well as the one they're married to? Did you hear did you hear that curious line that you read so beautifully? That, that you know, when, when this person is naked, then her husband is naked. When this is naked, then you're naked. Hold on to that. It's the real key to what we're talking about here. The sacredness of sexuality, then, is what we turn to today. Thou shalt not commit pornea. I'm going to use that word, the Greek word, pornea. We will learn later about a healthy understanding of work and how we would how work can be a a context for flourishing as a Christian. And a healthy understanding of ambition. Boy, do we need to hear that. That's coming up. But today we're going to talk about adultery. Now we know that that that's a problem. I'm not going to mess with the sacred space and start telling you all the problems. 
if you woke up this morning in the 21st century, then you know we got a major crisis going on when it comes to moral clarity and the issue of trust. It's all over the politics right now. You know, I know. It's in the campuses. It's in, even now in middle school, my wife comes home from middle school and tells me, and I'm not just talking about people having sex with each other. As you're going to learn, you're going to realize that sex, that's just the little tip of the iceberg of what sexuality is. We got a problem. And what's really scaring me is I'm seeing the problem increasingly in the church, even in this church. People are asking questions, good questions. I mean, wouldn't it be a proper thing to, to have sex with someone you love, though? I mean, yeah, there's casual sex, but there's some sex that's not casual, but that, that could be good, right, Pastor? Good question. We need to deal with that. And what you're going about to find out is that, that there's something deep, 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 deep going on here. And what you're going to find out is in the climax of this sermon, you're going to find that singleness is related to this topic in a major way. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your moral clarity, your beautiful mind. Oh, I long for your beautiful mind to come through my mind. Please help me, Lord. I'm a little bit tired after two services and all that's been going on, and I need your help. Please come. And I know these people need your help. They come from a world that is can't even be compared hardly to the beautiful social existence that you envision for us. And so, Lord, help us all by your Holy Spirit to hear, not just words, but by your the Christ that's in us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so, so let's get going here. First, I'm just going to focus on the moral clarity, and particularly in the outward sense. So we're going to go deeper, but just the outward sense, but it begins to help us here. The word there that you heard, uh, sexual immorality, I think was the word uh, in the English that was used, that word is pornea, and it is a really heavy, heavy pregnant word. Not, of course, a prohibition against sex. Let's just get that one out of the way, obviously, but we're going to go into that later. But it was a prohibition, I'm going to say, of sex in a wrong context. What is that context? Now you're going to roll up your sleeves. First of all, notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 6.18, he says this, Flee from pornea, sexual immorality, and every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexual immoral pornea person sins against his own body. Where did Paul get that? Where does that mean? He got it from Leviticus, for one. There was something deep going on in that passage in the way it was describing sexual immorality about nakedness. What was that? Notice, first of all, that the assumption here then is that when you pornea, you abuse your body. But here's the key. When you touch someone's skin in the scripture, We in a secular world have lost that. There is a deep and abiding unity to our, the human nature in Scripture. The human Scripture doesn't atomize the humanity and the anthropology of that humanity. That's what we do in a world without God. That's what we do in a world without spirit. 
is we start atomizing. You're a brain, you're a finger, you're a mouth, you're this. We atomize medicine, we atomize it all because there's a sense in which there's no holistic conception of the human being. I cannot overemphasize how absolutely bastardized that is in a true reading of Scripture. To touch my flesh, to touch my skin is spiritual horrific. It impacts you. I made a joke in the first sermon. I guess I'll do it in this one. It was probably inappropriate. And it was, you know, but, but I made the point that, that, you know, if someone does a foot rub, I mean, I don't know, how far away is that from the sexual parts? I'm telling you, that is sensual. There's something about that. You think of it, I hadn't had one in a while. Lisa was in the room when I said that, so I didn't admit it quickly, and she hadn't either. We need to get back to it. But the point being that, that there's something about touching that. Touch. We know it intuitively, don't we? What Lisa le- le- does do sometime in my life is she'll tickle me. You know, and just, just a little intimate moment and kind of tickle my arm or something. And it is deeply, deeply, deeply spiritual. Not in a religious sense, but spiritual in the sense that there's just, it just it communicates. In fact, it may be one of those deepest forms of communication that we ever have as a married couple. It's when she just touches me and I touch her. My wife's father seemed to know that intuitively. When I asked Lisa's dad to marry me, if I could marry his daughter, first thing he says, why, aren't you, why are you talking to me? Go talk to her mother. Um, and I like that. There's a little co-equality there. I was trying to do it the old-fashioned way. I got rebuked by my grandfather. That's great. I love it. Um, but the other thing was that, that uh, I, said, I said, well, just before we go up there, I, you're her father. You're, you know, you're, you're the man. What would you want me to know? And it cracks me up sometimes. It's so simple. And it's so theologically correct. And he wouldn't take it. And he said, well, just don't stop touching isn't that incredible? What did he know intuitively? I hope you'll see what he knew, whether he knew it or not. <laughs> and so listen to what's going on here. Pornea is a sin against one's own body. It's to be humiliated if it's done outside of the context that we're going to hear about. And it's not just about me. It's much deeper. You see, in the Bible, the close relationship in biblical body, spirit, is ultimately related to the, this incredible uh, organic way that God sees society. We have gotten so, post-enlightenment, secularism doesn't understand the human person anymore as in a real communion with anyone. We're all individuals. The Bible doesn't have that concept, so now we went from anthropology to sociology. And in the Bible, when you, when you touch another person or when you engage another person, you are in a mystical union with each other that, that is patterned after this other mystical union that we have now with God. That's the second point I'm making. In other words, this close, inseparable relationship from the Spirit of God as the temple of God is now transacted mystically in the very presence of the Spirit of God in the life of the what? Not the Spirit of Christ, 
Has anyone ever called you the Spirit of Christ? Do you see any of that in the Bible, you know, this ooey-gooey spiritual? No, it says you're a body in Christ. A body. And therefore, what's going on here is that there's a context of sociology in the Scripture that's just totally foreign to what is outside that door, what the Canaanites expressed in their paganism and what was happening in Ephesus. And he's saying, man, they've lost the clarity here. Because it's not just about intercourse. It's about a whole anthropology within the context of the Holy Trinity. And the way that Holy Trinity envisions communion with one another, a communion that we are to experience one another as the body of Christ. You say, well, where are you getting that one, Pastor? Okay, here it is. Notice that he's talking to them, first of all, you is plural in a minute. And notice when he says this, that you, plural, is doing something uh, related to the temple of God. So let me, uh, let me read that passage for you. If I can find it, I've been talking off script here. Okay, here it is. Listen carefully to this passage. Do you, plural, not know that your bodies are members of Christ? I mean, this is getting as mystical as the, the, the prayer, the last prayer of Christ, John 17. And should I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Now that word there literally would be not just a professional person, but he's saying it in the most uh, sort of outlandish way he can to get your attention. But just basically to someone, as you'll see, not married. Someone else, you both. So let me read. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Should I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, emphatically. Do you not know that whoever is united to this prostitute becomes one body with her? Shun pornea! Exclamation point again in Scripture. That's the pornea word. It's sacred because the purpose you see. It's, it's relating it now to this idea of when you have sex, and anything leading up to it, as we'll see, attitudes at all, don't you know you're having sex in a manner that is not sex with Christ, if I could say it so kind of like that. In other words, he's saying that, that don't you know that when you sin, when you do something with your body, that it's spiritual, and that spirituality and your body is in communion with the very spirituality of Christ. When we come to this table, we remember this. See, where is Christ right now? Christ is in heaven. Is Christ there a platonic Christ, only spirit? No, it's body and spirit. There's a mystery there. But we know that his body and spirit is always united. We in the church believe that, that, that death after, life after death, what? Do we just believe in a spiritual resurrection? No. We believe in a bodily reuniting to the spirit resurrection. And so this is crucial. Do you not understand, he's saying, hear the moral clarity that sexuality is, is, is a sacred, sacred event that pertains to the sacramental union that we enjoy with, with God, the Trinity, and, and Jesus Christ particularly, as he is in body and spirit in heaven, now we share that communion. And where is Jesus' body on earth? In the mystery of our union, it is you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and I touch you, and I feel you feel in touch with Christ. Now this 
I hope I'm blowing your mind. If not, you're not hearing me. There's not a human being in the world that is even remotely thinking like this unless they've read the Holy Scriptures. And in all the things that come out of that by way of practices. And so here we have this incredible statement. This idea that, that God envisions this beautiful alien society. I said that word you is in the plural. Some people will read that passage and think that what's going on there is that he's saying me individually am the body of Christ or the temple. So that you're now violating the very temple of God when you violate me personally. And I'm going to say yes and no. Yes, indirectly, he's talking about you as an individual. But in this social idea of holy communion, and the communion that is the, at the apex of what's going on in sexuality that, that is reflective of the sacramental union that we enjoy with God, the Holy Trinity, what he's saying is that when you have sex outside of marriage, and I'm going to talk about marriage in a minute, and singles, then basically what you're doing is you're sinning against the temple church as you are a very vital member of the temple church. In other words, the temple church is getting polluted. And if you know Paul and if you understand Old Testament, you, again, I'm just, this is a tough sermon, guys. This is foreign to us. Everything I'm saying is probably foreign to you. But if you understood and read the Old Testament, what you would know is there's nothing more sinful, nothing more hideous and grotesque and horrible than to in any way, in any way corrupt the temple of God because of this mystical reality of the temple of God being God. Being God, the temple is God. Not necessarily, not necessarily immediately, but ordinarily it's the very means through which God is in the midst of his people. And that is the apex of redemptive history is for people to be reunited to God and therefore it is the very apex of human sexuality that our purpose is to do it only when it, it, it fosters a, as witness the very temple of God presence that we will enjoy in heaven. And that's where we go to the marriage. You see, it's very important to understand that, that this idea of a man and a woman in Genesis, notice that it says they are made in the image of God, both man and woman. And when they are in union together in this intimate institution called marriage, it's in that institution that man who is part of God, woman who is part of God, you know, we think of God as male oftentimes, and, and, there, and he is spoken of in particularly male terms because of its covenantal use, being the head of the household, being the, 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 the inheritor. So I'm, I'm not taking you away from, I'm not moving you towards inclusive language necessarily in, in the passages of Scripture because there's something else going on there. But... But we can say that God is both male and female. Because it says in Genesis that I made them male and female. In my image I made them. Plural. So we know, of course, that women and men are both in the image of God. So there's the individual side. And they're made to be images. Now, what is an image? Now, this is where, if you've been around Christianity, Christendom and all influenced with all this secular stuff around, it makes us a secular Christianity, we start talking like with the world about it being something about rationality. What does it mean to be an image of God? Oh, so you're a rational creature. I don't know. That, that 
that baboon over there that they've been talking about is pretty rational to me. It has nothing to do with this. Nothing to do. Oh, it's, it's people who know how to, I, I don't know. I've heard all kinds of things. What does it mean to be human? Big question. Well, for us, according to Genesis, what it means to be human is to be made to image. There is nothing more sacred than that. It's to be that which would image on earth that which is in heaven. Ever heard that phrase? I mean, it's only the driver of all of redemptive history. On earth as it is in heaven. That's what this whole redemptive history is about. On earth is heaven. On earth is heaven. Earth is heaven. Jesus told us to pray. On earth is heaven. It's everywhere. And how does that work? Temple. <laughs> what is the temple? Intimate communion with Christ. What is the purpose of marriage? I don't have time to read it. i got all the scriptures here. But if you were to go through redemptive history, you'll see the most common metaphor that relates to what it means to be in union with God is marriage. That God is married to his covenant people. You see that in Christ. In Paul, in Ephesians, he quotes the institution of marriage in Genesis 1. He quotes it. And he says, by this quote, how it is that we, the people of God, when we get married, and it almost gets so, if you've read Ephesians 5, go back and read it. If you've read it, if you've been married, you probably have married, and you certainly have married if you got married in this house, in this church, because we go after that. You'll see that Paul doesn't quite know what he's talking about sometimes, it looks like. He does, but, he, but we kind of look at him through. No, no, he talks about the relationship man, you know, the husband, the wife, husband, and he goes, but of course I'm talking about the church here. And he goes, what? <laughs> And he quotes the passage, you know, and, and, the, and the two became one flesh, and they da-da-da-da-da. He quotes a, a Genesis, and you're going, what? I thought he was talking about marriage. He is talking about marriage. You can't separate marriage in Paul's mind from this holy, redemptive purpose. So what is the purpose of marriage? It's to fulfill the image of God in that way. It's to fulfill the image of God. Now, singles, I want you to listen to me. Don't turn me off you are going to be surprised at how significant your place is in this story. And we're going to even end with this. I think it's almost, it is the climax. So what do we have here in this passage? Did you hear it? Let me read it again. Because what Paul will do is he will go on in that very passage, talking about pornea, very passage about the whole idea of the temple, and then he will quote, yep, Genesis 1. Again, I'm looking forward to my text. I'm just totally off text here. If you want to hear a, a, a more textual sermon, read the one this morning. But I'm, I think I'm doing fine here. It's, it's live. It's supposed to be live, right? It's all supposed to say amen, Pastor Rich. Something like that. Something like that. I'm playing. But anyway, I can't, I'm, I'm lost, it's lost in my notes. But the idea is, just trust me, if you go back in that whole passage that I, that I read, where is that passage? I'm now getting kind of ornery here. I'm going to find it one more time. It's in italics. Would y'all come help me find my passage? This is crazy. I just started reading a minute ago. Oh, well, I'm sorry. I don't know what. It's just like, it, I guess the Lord doesn't, no, I'm not going to say that. That's stupid. Okay. Oh, here it is. Yeah. So I, I, I didn't complete the reading of that italics that you see on my text. See the italics? There it is now. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Should I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of the prostitute? Never. Do you not know that whoever is united to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Shun fornification. For it is said, the two shall become one flesh, but everyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now there it is in Scripture. What's marriage about? 
Marriage is all about directing. It's a witness. It's fulfilling the, the, the vocational purpose. It's one way to fulfill the vocational purpose that the ultimate end in all of life is that our intimacy will be fulfilled in union with the Holy Trinity through Jesus Christ. That's what the whole redemptive history is about. And therefore, to have sex or anything leading up to it, etc., emotions, attitudes, everything, is to violate the very purpose of existence. What a big deal. It is sacred. As sex is in context to the marriage. Now, why is that important? Because only in marriage is the relationship formed by a covenant. And the covenant is what makes this most vulnerable and powerful institution safe. Because, see, the whole idea of that passage that I just read, that he quoted from Genesis, if you go back to Genesis, is a context where Adam assumes the vow of Christ. He failed it, we have a second Adam. But the vow of Christ is this vow, which in so many words is, till death do we part, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I, you, man, we're married, man, like it or not, it's going to go on for the rest of your eternal life. It's that significant. It's the grace. What Paul is saying is that the, is that the source of all abusiveness and sexuality and everything that leads up to it is that we've violated the marriage covenant, which carefully regulates this intimate body-spirit union of a temple people when we, violate, when we yank it out of the context of grace. And grace is not grace without covenant because it's always there in front of you that you could leave me, I could leave you. And therefore, out of that, we get into all the other stuff of what sex isn't that it is everywhere out there. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But it's abusive. It's selfish. It's performance-driven. It's, it's a, a form of, of, of individual expressivism. Man, look at I mean, what's happening right now in America, the We Too movement, all that stuff that needed to happen, praise God, it's exposing, but we, we've heard nothing else and hearing that in every sector of life, sex, leads to abusive things. It's sick when it's done that way. And then it reflects this incredible, beautiful marriage who envisions a beautiful intimacy, an intimacy that is this sacramentally con- uh, uh, born and executed out of the sacramentalness of sex itself. You know, the Roman Catholic Church believes it's a sacrament. I'm 80% there. If it weren't for one specific, significant thing, then I would be there. I'm not going to bore you. It would take me too many times to explain it. But it's really true. The images we have in Scripture. And when there is adultery and the Scripture uses sex as an image of the adulteress in relationship to God, we even have a confession. You hear it sometimes, how we confess that we've become harlots. 
the church of Jesus Christ that we've gone after other gods. You just can't get away from this. And so here we have this problem. Now, there's one more word I want to say very quickly, but it really is so simple biblically. I would love to take a lot more time about this, but I can't for the time's sake, as you know. But here's what I want to say about it first. There's this word, arsenokoite. That's the second part. Did you notice? Sexual immorality and uh, I believe the translate men who practice homosexuality or people who practice homosexuality. This is a significant translation. I want to start there. If you were to read the King James or the NIV, now NIV was a fairly progressive uh, 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 translation, you know, that, that's been around evangelicalism even for a long time. And the word is translated perverse. In the NRC, it's called sodomites. It's referring actually back to uh, the days of, of Leviticus, that, that the fact that there was homosexuality as a as a predominant worldview and spirituality in that pagan culture and therefore he's only he's taking a word that that is not sodomite and he's just they're referencing it but here's the word if you want to know it the word here literally arsenoikoit is man or man spoken for humanity humanity lying in bed with another as in being naked and so the there's absolutely no controversy uh, in terms of scripture in my mind that homosexuality is an aspect of pornea. That's his point, that, that pornea is sinful. And so notice what I like about the translation. It does not say pervert. I think that would actually be a sinful, not just a wrong, but a sinful way to translate this concept. It would be why wouldn't you, I, only if you could use that word to describe every single person in this work, room. Because it is an absolute sin how the church, the evangelical even church, has treated, I think, homosexuality. And I think that it's sad because we've lost the sense of what's wrong about it, and what's wrong about it has nothing to do with same-sex attraction, really. What's wrong about it, because in the scripture, same-sex, I mean, we have a lot to learn from, from the gay community. They are righter than we are, most of us, in understanding that God doesn't limit intimacy. I mean, the kind that's pure and, and, and platonic, quote-unquote, even though I don't like the word. But intimacy is something that, that we're freaking out about in same-sex stuff. And we did that based on the Victorian world. But, the, man, we should, we should find room for that kind of intimacy. And I mean, in legal context, in social context, there is a sense in which all of the body of Christ should experience an incredible union of intimacy and love. But we're talking about just sex here. And sex outside of the context of marriage. Marriage which is imaging the temple reality between Christ and his church, an essential thing, and off we go. And so let me make it clear that yes, we believe that homosexuality is a form of pornea. That's it. But it's no less bad, no more bad for, a, for a, a gay man or woman than it is for a heterosexual man or woman. It's no worse, no better. It's the same thing. He's just saying, yeah, it's, it's that. And that's why this word pervert or sodomites as if somehow this word is, is a different sin than pornea. It's just pornea, that's all. But it's, that's all. That's huge. But not because of the homosexuality. 
Um, I've said this many times before publicly, but we need to find more ways to, to open up intimacy between same sexes. I think women do it much better than men. Much better. Much better. And men should be able to do it as well. I mean, we're afraid to get with each other because we have something to do. I mean, we can't sit at a coffee pot and talk. <laughs> you know, so, you know, I'm playing with that. Anyway, back to that. I want to I I close this off. So here we go. So bottom line is this, I, and I put a quote by Tim Keller. He has a nice little uh, essay called The Gospel and Sex, and I think he really gets it right here. What I've tried to communicate today is that sex is a sacred because it is the analogy, I'm quoting uh, Keller, the analogy of the joyous self-giving and pleasure of love within the life of the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live in a relationship of glorious devotion to each other, pouring love and joy into one another continually. Sex between a man and a woman points to the love between the Father and the Son, as well as then between Christ and the church. Isn't that cool? You can see why it's such a, a big deal. It's sacred. It's sex. Now, let me put this into our context a little bit. Well, first of all, I, I actually missed one thing. I want to I very briefly... So what does it mean to commit adultery in this way? Well, notice especially that, that uh, we have said before that when the law gives a law, it'll take that which is maybe summarized in a negative way or a behavioral outward way, and it will, if you read, bother to read Leviticus, it will then explain it as it's related to the inward ways that we commit adultery. And, the, and, the, uh, and, and it implies all the positive things that would be on, on the opposite way of, of doing good sex, if you will. Does that make sense? So here we go. First of all, there's moral law stated in the commandments that unpacks scripture is to include attitudes, speech, overt behavior, with, which encourage a particular sin is, is also described as sin. Now here's where, in our world, where we have so uh, bastardized sex that we as a church are really falling. Most churches will concede that sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman is a sin. That is just the tip of the tip of the tip. You know, Jesus said it this way, um, for from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. He goes right down the list of the five commandments again. So let me try to unpack what that would be. If you were to look at Leviticus, or if you were to read, oh, if you read the Proverbs, oh, does the Proverbs unpack the Ten Commandments all over the place. Or if you were to even read Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 and 4, into chapter 5 actually, it's really three chapters, it includes the marriage and all that, then some of the things that you would, the church has conceded that is in scripture, and all of this is scripture reference, but this is what it would mean then to violate uh, cornea, to commit cornea in these ways. What are the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment? This is a 350-year document that is, that, is, that is absolutely consistent with, with all the confessional creeds that, that, that preceded all the way back to Christ. So it's pretty big consensus is what I'm trying to say. What are those sins forbidden in the seventh commandment? The sins forbidden in the seventh commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, are adultery, fornication, rape, incest, sodomy. And that, he, he, he said, that's the outward stuff, right? And here he goes, or they, we go, the church. And all unnatural lusts, all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections, 
all corrupt or filthy communications or listening to those communications. I was thinking last night I was came home after playing golf yesterday morning. Boy, it was a beautiful day. You played golf, that was the day. But I came home exhausted, kind of popping through the TV and saw this James Bond, you know, uh, movie was playing. I didn't watch it, but I just stopped to think about it, you know. Um, I grew up in Atlanta, and my whole life, uh, when it came to cinematography, revolved around when's the next James Bond movie going to come out. That's when they were actually being still made, right? And we would walk a couple of miles up the road to Lenox Square in Buckhead, Atlanta, and we'd watch it every time it came out, all the kids in the street. And what do I learn about sexuality from James Bond? I mean, you could say, well, you were not committing adultery. Man, I was committing freaking adultery big time. And still was. I mean, first of all, I'm learning about the objectification of women. You see, what's wrong with the objectification of women or men now? What's wrong is because we've, 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 we've violated that principle I've talked about, that the body and the spirit are holistically one, and that body-spirit oneness is holistically one with the body of Christ, which is holistically united to the Trinity. And so when I'm watching this, what do I learn? I learn about seduction. Women are always the seductresses. I learn about a man who sees women as sexual gratification. I see everything made to look really attractive that is the source of everything we're reading about in the newspaper right now. Those, those, those very qualities where we objectify the human being. That is to, all objectification is is separating body and spirit. That's all it is in, in the spirit, theological sense of the word which leads to all that crap that's going on. And so here we have this situation where, where rightly the scripture teaches that even watching, even looking, even doing this, even thinking, you know, that is to get into the sexual sin of pornea. It's to participate in it, even if your own imagination is. And we as Christians are going to say, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? No, it's not going to be a, a political or, or, or a, uh, a civil sin. I, I'm not advocating that we, I don't know, somehow put mirrors in the, in the houses and make sure that people aren't watching James Bond. But what I am saying is if you really want moral clarity, which is what we're here to do, we've got to be honest that all this stuff that we're casual about is pretty serious stuff, according to the Scripture, as related to this sin of pornea. Let me go on. It goes on to talk about how... Um, we should avoid all lascivious songs. Think about the music we listen to and what it talks about. Books. I guess that's, I guess there went the, uh, the gray book. You know, what is it called? You know, something about gray. Pictures. They went cinematography. Hollywood. Dancings. Stage plays. You know, we, we think we're so sophisticated. I mean, we're talking about scripture. This, this is written 350 years ago, but all the way back to the Canaanites. That's what that stuff, he mentioned that, you probably didn't know it, but offering your daughters to Moab meant where they would go and do drama at the temple of Moab, of, of whoever it was. And, that, and it, was, it was the way in which their society, in that their society was intensely spiritual. They, every society had a patron idol, if you will. And to go and please that idol, the, the predominant way to do that is to have orgies. But things that led up to orgies were really pr pretty uh, 
significantly choreographed dances. Dances that were erotic and seductive. Awful. That's, that's pornate. Of course, we know that that's happening almost in everything we watch now. It's almost impossible to watch anything that doesn't do that. Because it's just so around us. So there's the inward part. And the positive part, I won't read it here, but in the positive part, what he's going to talk about, what we've been talking about is, so everything that's the opposite of objectifying another human being, do it. That'd be a good summary. How would you treat someone that is the very living presence of God mediated as a temple? How, how would you respect someone? Did you notice constantly, again, I say that, how to be naked in this was to violate the whole community, which was to violate God. And so what would it mean to treat one another holistically as human beings with great sacred worth, like we talked about in the last sermon on Genesis? And so there we go into this issue of, uh, of the positive. Now, I'm going to end the sermon this way. It's going to take a little bit more time, so don't, I'm not about to end in one minute. I'm, I'm sorry. But what I want to do is put this in the context of history just a little bit, where we are. If you were to study and do a brief history of sex, the unsacred attitudes of sex contrasted with the sacred attitudes in Christianity, here's what you would get. First of all, if you were, this is one summary, but one attitude that was very prominent in ancient Greek and Rome was what I'll call the sex as a natural appetite. Sex as a natural appetite, one ancient Roman Greek attitude was that sex is similar to any other bodily activity such as eating or sleeping. When you felt like doing it, you should do it. Just be careful not to overdo it as all other appetites. Tell me that's not what's going on out there. I mean, it's just, it's just who we are. It's just part of being human. Rid it from all the sacred theology and redemptive purposes. It's just an appetite. I'll call that casual sex at this side of the extreme. It's just hook up. I mean, that's what the culture is. Hook up. It's, it's fun. It's just something to do fun. You want to... My son and I were talking, my, particularly my middle son was off at college, and we came and had a big conversation about this, and he described to me the culture that he was living in at the time. I don't know if it's the same at Yale, it probably is. But literally, it was no bigger deal than now. You go to a party, have a few beers, and uh, it's fun. I mean, what's wrong with that? It's fun. It's, it, it's, it's, it's fun. It's a fun thing to do. And that's what this, this goes all the way back to what was going on right in the in the period of time that Paul was writing this. Sex is a natural appetite, casual sex. Another view is sex is an animal passion. Now, what I mean by that is a negative thing, a, a kind of a, a, well, kind of a negative thing. In this ancient high culture Hellenist view, if you were platonic, you believe sex is kind of a necessary evil. It was this idea that, that to have sex is demeaning to humanity, and it's gross, it's dirty, it's dark, it's, it's just... Part of the requirement that we have now to, to, uh, uh, to have human beings. And that was a very prominent, highbrow, Hellenistic attitude. In some ways, I see that in the church historically sometimes. There's a close proximity, unfortunately, historically, between Platonism and the church. This is a spirituality thing. And some churches might have communicated that to you in so many ways that somehow, and sadly, many of our daughters and, and sons have been raised in a context where really the only way they can think of sex honestly, though it's probably never said quite like that, is sex is dirty. I would 
never want my children to grow up in that. And I hope you don't either. I hope you don't either. But that was a second view. The third view then would be that, uh, that sex, or, or it, what, you know, this idea that, um, well, I'll just call it romanticism, that, that there's a romanticness about sex. Now, here's what I mean. There's this idea back in the ancient cultures that, that sex is part of our primal identity. That's a key word, primal. Going back to what we are, I mean, today we could just unpack that with an evolutionary theory. And that it is at the very heart, you know, Freudian, if you know Freudian psychology, it's based on this whole concept. That there's a primal necessity to have sex in order to discover yourself, in order to be yourself. It creates a sexual relationship to my identity now. I am what I am ultimately in my sexualness. And in this primal way of thinking about it, uh, this, that what happens now is that, well, I'm thinking of a book that, that my son had to read at church. And I can't remember the name, and I won't, even, I won't go to it, but, but the book was, boy, it was, it was steamy. But the image that was particularly steamy was this moment where this man was taking a walk through the woods. You can see this coming, right? And here comes this maiden, woman, or whatever you want to say, and they meet each other, have this very intimate conversation. And before you know it, this book has you by the, by the side of a big log with moss and the, what's the smell, that, that smell of dirt. And it was incredibly well written. It's probably one of the best written books I've ever read about it. And it was just this primal sensation of sexuality and could be. I think of, it's the, it's the fantasies you know, being picked up by a hitchhiker and going back in the rain and having it out in the most unprepared way where you let go of all of your inhibitions. Again, this is not new to our culture. When we rip sex out of this holy trinity context of union with the body of Christ. You know, what we believe as a Christian is that sex then is sacred, right? It's this idea that, that sex fulfills everything about who we are. And it constructs, if it's done rightly, a holy society. And by the way, it's interesting in the Bible that sex, because women are not objectified and women are not objectified, they are treated holistically, that there's an incredible equality in sexual union. For instance, I'm going to read uh, from one commentary, and, and y'all have heard me maybe preach out of, out of um, Song of Solomon's, but here's a great, and I agree with this, a great description of, of, of the Song of Solomon and the way that sexual activity works. The role of the woman throughout the Song of Solomon is truly astounding, especially in light of its ancient origins. It is the woman, not the man, who is the dominant voice throughout the poems that make up the song. She is the one who seeks, pursues, initiates. She boldly exclaims her physical attraction. And most English translations hesitate in this verse because the Hebrew is quite erotic and most translators cannot bring themselves to bring out their obvious meaning. But this, again, is a prelude to their lovemaking. There is no shy, shamed, mechanical movement under the sheets. Rather, the two stand before one another aroused, feeling no shame, but only joy in each other's sexual intimacy. What he's referring to is an ancient practice where when you got married in the Hebrew, the night of your marriage, uh, you know, the, the wedding night, uh, you would strip naked, 
uh, you would clean each other's genitals. And then you would have a ceremony where you would go down the, uh, the body. You can read it right there in, in, in Solomon. And you would start with the hair, and you go right down to the toes, and you would describe the beauty of the person you were looking like in the most poetic way you could. And you think, well, isn't that objectifying the body? No. Because, see, love was blind. I mean, we know that everybody's not beautiful in the sense, I mean, uh, beauty's not a beholder, I do believe that. But the point being is that it wasn't about what we would describe in the body. It was not describing the body like, well, you got a little roll here, but it's, it's all right. And, oh, where you got a little this there. You know, It was totally foreign from that. The concept was that your body is your spirit connected. And it was a way of saying, it was a way of enacting the covenant of grace that says, my love, when it comes to any flaw in your life, is blind from now on. And they would do it together. In the context of at least Song of Solomon, it's the woman that seems to be driving this, this, this story. And all that just to illustrate that in the way sex should be, it is such a beautiful co-equalness in the image of God, experiencing intimacy under grace. And that's key. Now, this is where I want to finally come back to the issue of singleness. Let me find my notes. The problem is I'm holding this thing and my thumb keeps hitting it and I, you know, and I lose where I'm going. That's the problem, just so you know. So let me do, let me do this. Um, All right, here we go, finally. What I want to say is that the sacred view of sex, rather than despairing singleness, actually is going to celebrate it. Let me show you what I mean. Paul wrote, going back to that Corinthians passage, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. That just blew the heck out of the idolatry of marriage in the church, doesn't it? But if you do marry... You have not sinned. So he concedes there's a purpose for marriage of which you should be married. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. In other words, you know, two virgins. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you of this. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. Note that last phrase that is huge. But what does he mean, first of all? I mean, if you're asking me, it sounds like he doesn't really like marriage very much. That's not his point at all. It's true that there will be many troubles in marriage life. You know, one of the way, things I hear most is about singleness and marriage is singles typically think that, that marriage is, is, is going to satisfy your, your, your longing for intimacy. And the issue of loneliness is huge. Now hold on, because I'm going to come back to that. But see, this passage explains why Paul referenced because when he says, for this world in its present form is passing away, what he's now introducing is this very sophisticated view of redemptive history. Where Paul understood, as we do today, that, that in Christ and his ascension, we began an era where the kingdom of God has come and has not yet come. Now listen to this. What Paul is saying is that one of the big problems in marriages is marriage idolatry where they actually think 
that the purpose of their marriage is to fully and perfectly solve the problem of loneliness and intimacy. And I can tell you anecdotally, and I'm not lying, there have been more, I think, marriage couples that come to me confessing loneliness than singles over the history of my 28 years of pastoral ministry. That's what leads to divorce every time, by the way, is expecting marriage somehow to satisfy this incredible and ache yearning to be holistically intimate with another. And Paul's point is, so many get married thinking that's the way to solve their intimacy. And that brings a lot of trouble on these marriages. What does he say? He's then going to go on to say how it is that that, uh, there's a purposefulness in singleness. And it relates to the meaning of the sacred calling of marriage. See, what was marriage supposed to do? It was supposed to direct people away from itself as the end to what the end is, which is union with Christ. A union that is now and not yet. A union we experience in the life of the body of Christ, yes, but a union that ultimately is penultimate because the ultimate union is is the union with Christ. And he's saying that the singleness is a calling to direct people towards that end. That That the end game here is only insofar as our intimacy is united to Christ. Let me make this very practical. If a marriage, if a, if a marriage couple is married for the sake of their witness to Christ, as Christ is to the church, the way that it's all set up, then one of the things they'll know is that marriage is penultimate at best, and therefore it can never replace our relationship with Jesus Christ. And two, they're going to recognize that in this life we're still going to be frustrated by the lack of intimacy, even in marriage. And then on the other hand, it's, it, uh, he's saying, so what does the celibate do? The celibate's saying, it's du- pointing the whole world to where true intimacy is. Away from marriage to Christ. And, and the, the idea here is that, well, Jesus says it. He says in heaven there will be neither marriage or given to marriage. What's he saying? He's saying my wife I suspect there'll be a memory of it. I suspect I'll know her as the same person I knew here. I don't know. But my intimacy with her will now be exploded into an intimacy with the whole church of Jesus Christ, with Christ at the very center of it. That there'll be such a fulfillment of of joyous intimacy among the people of God living on earth that, that there is no more a use for marriage, which tells you very clearly that marriage is not ultimate. And for the single then, they see themselves, whether you're single providentially or whether you've intentionally chosen to be single. It's all the same thing if you look at it from a God-centered point of view. God, either providentially, and you recognizing that as the purpose for your life, or you're still not sure what the purpose of your life is, it doesn't really matter. That's not the issue. In God's decree, you're single. And you have a very special place in this redemptive story of of the seventh man. Now here's the problem. 
well, let me tell you what the church did. The church so believed this that it was the most radical thing in the world. But what the church did, based on these Paul, Paul's apostolic thing, is they realized that, therefore, the woman is, is, is untethered in a manner that she can truly pursue her intimacy with Christ as that is realized through the body of Christ. Remember, there is no distance between Christ and the body of Christ, at least in terms of how we experience Christ today. Now, the church said, well, God, that's a problem because we're living in an economic system where the only way you can make a living is to be married. Talk about the idolatry of marriage, that would suck. And so what do we do? The church, go read Timothy, the same book that we're looking at, has a whole, about three paragraphs about all the ways in which we need to celebrate and, and, and make room for, for celibacy within the church of Jesus Christ. That included money, that included housing, that included a whole host of things. And I'm going to tell you this is an area where maybe this church has sinned the most. I really mean that. I mean, some of you who are unmarried, I know, I've talked with you, I know some of the pain that you've experienced in the church. You know, the people who come up to you and say, you know, gosh, I mean, you're such a neat person. I can't imagine why you're not married. I mean, that's, just stop and think about that in court light of what Paul just said. What? You mean I have a disease? You mean something's wrong with me? Don't ever say that. Or anything like that. Rather, what we should understand is that married people, just like unmarried people, have a different kind but similar struggle as we all seek to see our intimacy fulfilled in Jesus Christ. If you're not married today, again, I hope you know and hear this, I promise you marriage does not satisfy the loneliness problem. It does in one way, more maybe than in your life. But in other ways, it does it worse than the ways in your life. And so what's going on here is we see that in this context of sexuality and the sacredness of sex, we desperately need the church to acknowledge that sex was never the end game. And marriage was never the end game. Heaven's the end game. And therefore the purpose of the celibate is to be a witness to the same thing that marriage is. And that is the marriage of the Lamb. That's what it's all supposed to be. Most marriages struggle because they forget that. I think that's the theological diagnosis down deep. And all of a sudden, you go back to all those other reasons for marriage. Individual expressiveness. Primal expression. Off it goes. Okay, I'm going to have to stop. But we come to this Lord's Supper. Moral clarity should lead to moral humility. Can I ask you, has anyone in here not sinned in the area of pornea? I mean, I'm struggling because I kind of like to watch, even now, Jane Bond movies. I mean, it just goes on. I mean, can I watch TV? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really screwed here. I kind of li like these movies, but I just don't know how. What can I watch? What can I do? What can I talk about in a world that is obsessed with pornea? Something to think about. But I'm humble, and I know you're humble, because I know screwed this up bad in the church corporately has screwed this up bad in the way it's idolatrized family and I'm coming to this table thinking praise God my moral clarity has led me to moral humility 
which now leads me to my old objection. Because my, my husband, Jesus Christ, took a vow and he said, till death do us part. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do that's going to keep my love and commitment to you. And that's what this whole story is about. Intimacy with Jesus Christ. Let's prepare ourselves.